Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Our scripture reading this morning, or our first scripture reading this morning, is going to be Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and then picking up again at verse 17 and reading through the first few verses of chapter 5. So, Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find these verses beginning on page 997. Three weeks ago, we began a new uh, sermon series. We'd been in Luke for some time, uh, and we finally got to the end of Luke's Gospel, and so we began a new series of sermons, this time a, a more topical series focusing on the mission of the church. Only we are looking at the mission of the church from a different angle. Normally around here, when we talk about the the mission of the church, we are talking about that which the church is called to do when it gathers together, when it gathers together in a service like this, or when it gathers together in small groups or across the city at people's homes, or or when it gathers for something like a retreat out at Camp Charity. We, We are normally thinking about what it is that the church is trying to accomplish when it gathers together. But in this service, or in this series... We are focusing more on what the church is called to do when it scatters, when it goes out among the community. And so when the church gathers, its mission is to make disciples. This is the charge given to us by Jesus himself. He he commands his apostles and the church that will be built upon the foundation of their teaching to go and make disciples of all nations. In Luke's Gospel, he he calls on them to be his witnesses, calling people to repentance and faith in his name. But if the church's mission is to make disciples when it scatters, or when it gathers, then it follows that when the church goes forth, when the church leaves here, when the, the church scatters back out into the community, that its calling is to then be disciples. To live as becomes followers of Christ. And so in this series, we are asking, what are the marks of that discipleship? What does it look like for them to actually live as becomes followers of Christ out in the community? What we saw two Sundays ago was that the, the first mark, the defining mark of discipleship is repentance and faith. It is repentance and faith that, that moves a person from being not a disciple to being a disciple. And then last Sunday, we saw that the, the first mark of a life transformed by repentance is worship. The person who, through repentance and faith, has been united to Christ and in Him has received every spiritual blessing cannot but worship God. We saw this in the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians in verses 3 through 14, where, where Paul himself, reflecting upon the blessings which belong to God's people in Christ, simply erupts in an exultant song of praise. We saw it also in 1 Peter chapter 1, where where Peter similarly breaks out in praise as he reflects upon the living hope that is now ours through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
And so we, we began by, by seeing and noticing in both Ephesians and in 1 Peter that worship is the first mark of a life transformed by repentance. And we saw that we often get to that worship through specified times of worship, through worship services, whether it be a a corporate service like this where where the church, or at least a part of the church, gathers together, or whether it be your own family gathering at home, or whether it be your own private worship, those those times where we set aside a a few moments, up to an hour or two, to, to, to enter into the worship of God, we often get to worship through such times. It has sometimes been said that we ought not to go to church to worship, but that we ought to come to church worshiping. And that is true in a, in a sense. We, we come to church worshiping. We ought to come to church worshiping. We ought to be worshiping God throughout the week. Throughout the week, we ought to have our minds set upon His glory, and we ought to be doing all things in His name. But while it is true in a sense to say that we ought to come to church worshiping, it is also true that we most need to go to church to worship when we least feel like worshiping. The worship service, when when properly ordered, walks us through the, the story of redemption. It reminds us of who God is and who He is for us in Christ, and as we we see the various parts of the worship service, they ought to renew our zeal for worship because they give us a glimpse of the glory of the God who is. We hear that He is a a God who invites us into His presence. We we hear that He is a God who assures us of His pardon. We, We hear that He is a God who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And as we sing songs, as we hear the Scripture read, as we confess our faith together, as we sit under the preaching of His Word, as we partake of the sacraments, in all of these ways, the glory of the Gospel of God is revealed and it draws us in to worship. And so when you least feel like worshiping, you most need to go to worship. That you might again see the glory of your God. That's exactly what we see happen to, to Peter and to Paul in these letters as they reflect upon the glory of God in Christ. They cannot but worship. But I want you to see this morning, as we continue on in these two letters, looking uh, later in Ephesians and and later in 1 Peter, what I want you to see this morning is that while worship is the initial response to this new vision of the glory of God, uh, this this new life transformed by repentance, while, while worship is the initial response, it is not the only response. But on the contrary, worship becomes the fountain of the entire Christian life. True worship brings forth obedience rooted in dependence. We'll see this first in Ephesians chapter 4 and then also in 1 Peter chapter 1. But before we read these passages together, let us pray and ask for God's blessing upon the preaching and reading of His Word here this morning. Father God, we come before You humbly now asking that indeed, according to your promise, your word might not return void, 
but that it might have its full effect in our hearts and minds this morning, that it might transform our lives, and that it might bring forth fruit to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. This is the very Word of God. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. From here, Paul goes on for a few verses to to talk about how that spirit of unity is to be maintained through the ministry of apostles and prophets and evangelists and teachers who have been given to the church by God himself as gifts. Gifts which are to help us grow up towards this maturity in Christ. But then in verse 17, he, he begins to unpack that maturity yet again, saying, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That is the reading of God's word. And in a sense, I could keep reading all the way to the end of the letter. For Paul's charge to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called really remains his theme all the way to the end. However, here, just just chapter 4 by itself and the first few verses of chapter 5 are enough to make the point. And what I want us to see is that Paul expects the worship of chapter 1 through 3 
to overflow in a life of obedience, which he describes in chapters 4 through 6. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, he says it this way. He says, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, or in view of God's mercies, or maybe because of God's mercies, he says, by the mercies of God, I appeal to you to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, Paul is expanding the idea of of worship beyond just the worship service, to the service of worship that is to fill our entire lives. He says you are to give your entire lives, your your bodies, every thought, word, and deed to God as a living sacrifice, as an overflow, an expression of your worship. It's the same point that he is making here. We we see this in his use of the word therefore in verse 1. Look again at what Paul writes. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul's use of therefore suggests that his charge to walk in a manner worthy of our calling is based on something that he has previously said, maybe on everything that he has previously said, as a, taken as a composite whole. And so what is it that Paul has said? What is it that Paul is basing this charge upon? Well, if you just begin to scan back through the letter, you you immediately realize that the, the immediately previous verses are an expression of praise. Look again at the last verses of, of chapter 3. Paul writes, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Recall these words, a doxology. They are an expression of worship. They are an expression of praise. And so we we see that, that Paul ends the first half of his letter exactly where he began it. He began his letter by overflowing with praise to God for the spiritual blessings which are ours in Christ. And he ends by saying yes to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask and think throughout all generations, throughout all churches and all times and places. To him be the glory. Paul is in worship mode. He is is proclaiming the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. So therefore, when Paul uses that little word, therefore, he is pointing us back to that worship which fills the first half of this letter. And don't miss the, the connection between God's rightful glory and our calling. It would be wrong, of course, to to think that God is worthy of glory because he has saved us from death into life, or or because he has uh, removed us from alienation and brought us into sonship, or or because he has moved us from curse to, to blessing. God didn't need to save us in order to be worthy of glory. He is in himself worthy of all glory. However, there's still a connection And the connection is this, that God's saving call is an expression of His glory. In our call, we experience His 
glory. God saves us because He is glorious. Because He is a God full of glory who who delights to show off His glory or to magnify His glory by serving others, by, by giving Himself away for the good of another. Because this is the very nature of the God that we serve. Our calling is connected to His glory. We are called because He is glorious. In fact, the call, the call that issues forth in in repentance unto life is a call that effectually opens our eyes to see His glory truly for the first time. And it is as we see His glory truly, as we, we see the wonder of who He is, that we are moved to worship. This is why repentance brings us into worship. It's why the, a life of repentance, a life transformed by repentance, issues forth in worship, even as it did for, for Paul, and even as it does for, for Peter in his letter. But more than this, what we begin to see in chapter 4 is that not only... Does this vision of God's glory, which is the result of our call to repentance, not only does that issue in worship, but it also brings forth a life of new obedience. A life transformed. So the question before us is this, what does this life of new obedience, which is the overflow of true worship, what does that life look like? How do we recognize this mark of new obedience? That's exactly what Paul begins to tell us in in chapter 4. And interestingly, the first thing that he mentions is unity. I doubt this is the first thing that most people would mention when they were describing the Christian life. And I really doubt that it's the first thing that people would mention when they were describing the Christians that they know. We don't often think of of the church as marked by unity. We we tend to fight with each other. We tend to to pick at one another. We we, we tend to uh, disagree with one another sharply sometimes. And yet, when Paul begins to describe the Christian life, when he begins to describe the life that overflows out of true worship, he begins with unity. Why? Why does Paul begin here? Well, Paul knew that the Ephesians, along with all the other churches that he had planted, were a lot like us. They were a lot like the church today. They were marked by disunity. (laughs) And he knew it was an issue that they needed needed to be addressed. And And he wanted to point out to them, he says, listen, people, listen, followers of Christ. When people serve the same master in the power of the same spirit... They ought to be unified. Think of what James says. What is it that causes fights and quarrels among you? What is it that that causes us to go after one another? What is it that that causes divisions? James tells us that, that what breaks our unity is selfishness. What breaks our unity is is self-seeking and self-interest and selfish ambition. It's when we demand our own way, when we go after our own agenda. 
that our unity is broken. By contrast, when we humbly serve the Lord, seeking His will rather than our own, when we we humbly serve Him, seeking His glory rather than our own, we will not be against one another, but for one another. We will be serving the same Lord, and therefore we will be unified with one another. For when we say serve the same Lord, when we pursue the same goal, when we are after the same interests, we cannot but be unified. This is why Paul says that the first mark of our new obedience must be unity. We must be unified in, in pursuing a common goal. But he doesn't just say be unified. He tells us what it is that we are to be unified in the pursuit of. Of. He goes on to describe our unified obedience in, in particular terms, both positive and negative. Look with me at verses 17 through 19. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So this is the, the negative. This is what we must no longer do. We must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. We must no longer live as we did when we thought the way that they do, when we worshipped what they worshipped. We must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds because their thinking is false. Their, their thinking is, is vain. Their minds are darkened. They are alienated from true life. There is ignorance in them because of the hardness of their heart. Those are harsh words. We don't like to speak this way today. It seems intolerant. And yet, Paul understands that when someone sees something falsely and they are living in accord with a lie... They are a danger not only to others but to themselves. They are on a path that leads to death. And sometimes we we have to speak boldly and say, listen, that's simply not true. That that leads to death. If your child picked up a a box of, of rat poison, you wouldn't let them snack for a while because, well, you know, we don't want to be intolerant. No. We recognize that these things lead to death. And so Paul speaks sharply and he says, do not live in the patterns of that ignorance. Put off, he says. Put off the things that accord with those lies which you formerly believed. Elsewhere he, he calls these the, the works of the flesh and he says that they are to be renounced. They are to be denied. But the Christian life is not entirely negative. It's it's not only that we stop doing certain things. It's not only that we uh, resist doing certain things. But rather, we are to begin doing certain things. We, We see this beginning in verse 20. Notice what Paul says. He says, That is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self. That's what we were just talking about which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So it's not just that we are to put off 
It's not just that we are to stop, but we are to be renewed and we are to put on. We are to put on a whole new life, a whole new manner of living that accords with the truth. And this is what he begins to unpack in detail at, at verse 25. And we don't have, obviously have time to, to go through all the details, but just notice some of the things that he says. We are, one, we are to put away falsehood. We are to speak the truth. Why? Because when we distort the truth, we are robbing our neighbor of the opportunity to live in accord with what actually is. We are distorting the truth so that we might take some advantage of them. He says, uh, he says you don't do that. Love doesn't do that. You, you, you put away falsehood and you speak the truth. And the second he says you put away anger, not in and of itself, but anger that leads to sin. He says, there is a righteous anger. There is a, a time to be angry. But in your anger, do not sin and do not hold on to your anger as if it were some sort of grudge that you were going to use against your neighbor. But, but put off anger that leads to sin and have anger only that is righteous and that gives no opportunity to the devil. Put off stealing. Let the thief no longer steal, he says, but rather let the thief begin to work. To work for his own bread, that he might eat his own food. And, in the very uh, opposite of stealing, that he might have something to give to the one who is in need. May you not think that the work and the goods of others are for your benefit, but may you see your work as the opportunity to bless your neighbor. Do not steal, but work and and give. Do not use your words to, to tear down. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but rather words that are edifying, words that build up, words that give grace to all. And then he just sort of throws a bunch together and says, bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice. Let all of these things be put off and be replaced with kindness and tenderness and a forgiving spirit. And above all of these, love. Walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. May this be the marks of your new life. As you continue scanning through, through chapters 5 and 6, you will see that, that Paul goes on to, to talk about what this transformation looks like in a number of different callings. What does it look like for parents? What does it look like for uh, employees? What does it look like for, for children? And in all these different ways, he begins to unpack what it looks like. To live in this life of, of new obedience. And, and we're actually going to be doing that over the course of the next few weeks. Over the course of the, the next several weeks, we will be asking, what does this life transformed by repentance, what does this life look like within our families? What does it look like in our relationship with our friends? What does it look like when we are at work? What does it look like when we are out in the neighborhood and in our communities? But for this morning, I simply want us to see that worship in response to a new vision of God's glory in Christ overflows in a life of new obedience. A vision of God's glory that draws us into worship cannot but also transform our lives. We actually see the same exact thing in 1 Peter chapter 1. Just turn there with me briefly. 1 Peter chapter 1, we saw last week that 
In the the opening verses of of this letter, Peter is celebrating the wonder of the glory of what is ours in Christ as he says that blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is the, the wonder of the gospel that leads him into worship. But now notice verse 13. And notice, he again starts with that little word, therefore. Therefore, because of all that I've just said, this time the connection's a lot clearer because they're a lot closer together, but he says, therefore, what are we to do? Well, well he says, therefore, first, preparing your minds for action. That's the, the translation in the ESV. Your, your version might say something slightly different. The, the literal translation would be, girding up the loins of your mind. In the ancient world, someone would gird up their loins when they were getting ready to do hard work. That's why the ESV says, preparing your mind for action. But I, but I like that image of, of girding up the loins of your mind, because throughout Scripture, what do you gird up with? You gird up with the belt of truth. And this is exactly what Peter has in mind. He says, securing your mind with the belt of truth, the truths that we have just been celebrating Girding up your mind with the belt of truth and being sober-minded. Think of what that image means. When you are drunk, you do not see things as they actually are. And Peter says, therefore, do not be drunk, but be sober-minded. See the world as it is. Set your mind fully on the grace that will be brought to you in Christ Jesus. And so he, he again and again points them back. He says, Focus on these truths. Set your mind on these truths. And having set your mind on these truths, having your, your, your mind girded up with this belt of truth, how do you respond? Well, again, it parallels what Paul has told us in Ephesians. There's, there's a negative and there's a positive. When our mind is girded up with the belt of truth, we will not be conformed, what? To the passions of our former ignorance, But as he who called us is holy, we will also be holy in all our conduct. This is what Peter is calling us to. He says, when your mind is girded up with this truth, this truth that we rehearse week after week as we gather for worship, this this truth that we hopefully uh, speak to one another in love in our own homes, this this truth that that fills our hearts and our minds as as our minds are girded up with this truth, we will not be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance, but we will be holy even as he who called us is holy. And that's the point. Worship brings forth obedience. Obedience is the fruit of true worship. But if that's true, why isn't this fruit more abundant? One of the things we have to understand is that this doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen Inevitably. If it did, Peter and Paul wouldn't need to command this obedience. You don't have to command a rock to fall when you throw it in the air. You don't have to command a piece of wood to float when you place it upon the water. Peter and Paul command this obedience. They they call for this obedience because they know that it does not happen automatically. It is not inevitable. It isn't magic. 
And we know this from our own personal experience. We know how hard obedience is. We know how much a struggle it is to to live in accord with what we know to be true. We know how, how hard it is to walk in the footsteps of faith and not allow the the passions of our former ignorance to take control. We we know this. But why? Why is it so hard? And again, the answer is, is clear. It is hard because we are the children of Adam. We have been corrupted by original sin. Look with me at at chapter 2, verse 1 of 1 Peter. Notice what... Peter says, he says, put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and all envy and all slander. It sounds a lot like what Paul was saying in Ephesians. But think for a moment what that language of put away or Paul says put off. Think what that language suggests. Think of what that language implies. If these are things that we must put away and not simply avoid, it suggests that they are in us. That they are in us by nature. And they aren't just in us passively. It's not just that they are there waiting to be activated. But notice what Peter says in verse 11 of chapter 2. He says that they are actively waging war against our souls. These passions are in us. And God, in His mysterious wisdom, has, has not completely removed them from the lives of His children so long as we live in these mortal bodies. We sometimes wish that he would, and we we seldom understand why he doesn't. But we understand that Scripture says that so long as we continue to live in this present evil age, as long as we continue to live in these mortal bodies, we will continue to be buffeted by our sinful passions. They no longer sit upon the throne, but they are still there, and they are still active. And therefore... If we are going to bring forth the fruit of true worship in our lives, then we must depend wholly upon the power of the Holy Spirit. This is why the other mark of of discipleship is dependence. Worship, obedience, and dependence. And actually, when you think about it, our our dependence upon God is is greater than simply a dependence for the power to obey. We we depend upon Him for our very lives. We don't draw our next breath apart from His grace. It is the word of His power that sustains the universe as it is. But here in these texts, it is clear that it is only in His power that we will have the strength to obey. We must depend upon Him for holiness. Even as our membership vow says, we must learn to pursue the obedience that becomes a disciple of Christ in humble reliance upon His empowering grace. But what does that mean? Sometimes it seems to us that if we were depending upon the immeasurably great power of God that This thing called the Christian life ought to be a lot easier. But again, we we have to not go with our own imaginations. We have to go with not what seems right to us, but with what the Scriptures say. And the Scriptures make it clear that, that dependence upon the Holy Spirit does not mean the Christian life will be easy. 
He, he works in and through us, but He doesn't take us out of the picture and just do it all for us. We see this in Paul's description of his own ministry when he says that it is only in the power of the Spirit that I proclaim Christ, but then he goes on to describe that ministry as a, as a ministry of labor and toil, even as God is at work in him. We see it again in his injunction in Philippians chapter 2 when he calls upon the Philippians to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, because it is God who is at work in them to will and to do that which is according to his good pleasure. So depending upon the Holy Spirit does not mean that we will experience easy success in this life, but rather hard and prolonged labor. What Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. But we make that journey. We do that labor in the power of the Holy Spirit. A power that has been promised to us. Again, think back to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, when you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit is not something that, that comes later, but it is a gift that is given to you at the moment that you believe, so much so that, that Paul can say elsewhere in his letters that if you do not have the Spirit, you do not have Christ. To have Christ is to have the Spirit at work in you. And this is why he prays for the Ephesians as he does, saying to them, not, I pray that God would give you the strength that you need, but rather that he would open the eyes of your hearts to the strength that is already yours, the immeasurably great power that is at work in those who believe. If you are here this morning and you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you have received and rested upon him for your salvation, then you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit and his immeasurably great power is at work in you even this morning that you might more and more walk in conformity with the will of your God that you might more and more live as becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, that you might more and more bring forth the fruits of righteousness to the praise of His glory. It will not be easy. And sometimes you will see your failings more prominently than you will see the, the good work that He is actually bringing forth. But the promise is clear. If you have believed, if you have rested, you are sealed with the Spirit. And therefore, you may with absolute assurance throw yourself upon His power and know that your resolve to walk in new obedience, your endeavor after new righteousness will not be in vain, but that you will Attain your goal, maybe not as quickly as you'd like, but you will attain your goal because the one who has called you is faithful and he will surely do it. He who began a good work in you will not fail to bring it to completion. And so each new morning, you can resolve, not in your own strength, but in humble reliance upon his grace, to live today to the praise of his glory by walking as becomes a follower of Christ. And because he promises to fulfill every such resolve for good, 
That is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we come before you now humbly asking that indeed you would allow our worship to issue forth in lives of obedience, not pursued in our own strength, but pursued in humble reliance upon the empowering grace of your Holy Spirit, with whom we have been sealed until that day. Father God, may we believe this gospel, may we rest in this gospel, and may we live out of this gospel day by day, more and more being conformed to the image of the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.